Okay, we're going to be in Luke chapter 12. This afternoon, we've been going through a series on the parables of Jesus, and today we have the parable of the rich fool. So, uh, you just sang, Riches I Heed Not. Yeah, we'll see about that. Um, This is a tough one. You know, the old saying is, where there's a will, there's a family. Okay, that was funny. Where there's a will, there's a family. Catch up. Yeah, okay. Um, Have you been around inheritance squabbles? Uh, It brings out uh, the worst in people in ways that are are unimaginable. People that you've loved and trusted and known your whole life will behave in ways that are completely inexplicable and surprising to you in an inheritance squabble. I heard of one uh, family, there were four siblings, and when the last parent died, while three of the siblings were at the funeral, the fourth got a moving van and went to the parent's house and got all the stuff that they wanted. And I, I bet you have stories like that if you've been around these, and you will be if you haven't. Um, it's a remarkable uh, vexation in a human mind to feel like something's going unfairly in an inheritance squabble. That's what happens in the parable of the rich fool. There's a guy who is totally preoccupied because he thinks he's being ripped off by his brother in an inheritance squabble, and he comes to Jesus and just blurts out to him. He says, fix this and make it right. It's not fair. And, and Jesus basically says no. And then um, tells him a story. So you've got a man who thinks that he has too little money. And to correct him, Jesus tells him about a story about a man who has too much money. And we're going to look at why that is in this parable. So let me pray for us, then we'll read the Scripture. Father, please um, come and speak to us. Help us. We're here because we want to know You. And we ask that You would open our hearts and our minds to You as we listen to Your Word. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So read with me, beginning at verse 13 of Luke chapter 12. This is in your bulletin if you want to follow along there. So someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? He said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So Leo Tolstoy has a short story, some of you probably know, uh, called How Much Land Does a Man Need? How Much Land Does a Man Need? And it's a Russian peasant named Pahom. And uh, he pops off at home one night... uh, lamenting his poverty, and he says, if I had enough land, I wouldn't even fear the devil. And in the story, the devil hears him and takes that as a challenge. If I had enough land, I wouldn't even fear the devil. And so soon, the chief of his tribe comes and makes an offer to him, and he says, "Uh, I'm going to give you as much land as you want. He says, "Uh, but 
Here's how it works. I sell the land by the day. That is, you give me a thousand rubles, and then whatever land you can circumscribe walking around it in a day's time, I'll give you. I'll make a deed for you, and the land will be yours. And he says, that sounds marvelous. And he's all excited about this. I'm going to have all this land. He can't sleep thinking about it. He's thinking, I I can probably do about 35 miles in a day if, if I really push it. And that's an amazing amount of land. I'll have enough like for the best farmland for me, and then I can sell some of the other land, and I'll have plenty of money for oxen and things. This is, you know, my ship has come in. This is going to be great. He's all excited. He gets up early to uh, make this journey that morning. The chief comes, and he has his fox skin hat, and he puts it down. He takes the thousand rubles and puts it in, and he says, okay, here's the starting place. Go from here, take a shovel, dig holes to mark where you have the boundaries of the land that you travel. And as long as you're back here, by the time the sun goes down, everything that you've circumscribed, I'll give you. And so he takes off. He's got some bread and water with him. He's got his boots and a jacket, which he sheds pretty soon because they're slowing him down. But he's making pretty good time. You know, he's, he's thought it out how he can get as much as he can and come back. But he keeps seeing, you know, well, here's some land that's especially nice looking. It'd be great for farming flax. I'm going to go around there a little bit. And, you know, by noon, he's, he's made the turn, his first of the four turns to come back and and is starting to wonder if uh, he's overreached a little bit. So he goes further down the second leg of his journey and then realizes, I have overreached. I'm going to have to cut this off. And so instead of a square, he's going to have a triangle, right? So he says, I better head back. He goes towards the mountain, which is just a distant view at this point. He's gone several miles. Uh, and as he's going, he's getting tireder. And the sun is getting hotter and lower in the sky. And he's thinking more and more, I am not so sure I'm going to make it. He's, he's exhausted. And he's thinking, I've got to go, though. I mean, this is one day of pain and a lifetime of enjoyment, and I've got to go. And so he pushes himself as hard as he can. And really at his limit. And he gets kind of the base of the hill to go up. And the people he can see now are up there. They're cheering him on, saying, come on, hurry, hurry, because the sun's going down. And it's really getting low. And as he gets... About halfway up the hill, the sun goes behind the mountain. And he's totally distraught at that point. But he realizes then the people at the top are still yelling at him to come. And, and he realizes, oh, they're up higher, so the sun hasn't fully gone down there yet. So he puts his last effort into going up the last part of the hill, and he gets almost there. And just as the sun goes down, he falls over dead before he reaches the hat again. And so the lesson of the story is how much land does a man need? He needs six feet of land to be buried in, right? He needs six feet of land. So what's Pahom's problem in the story? He's bad at math, right? Like he should have planned better, clearly, and he would have made it and it would be fine. It's a logistics issue. Or it's something defective in his soul, right? And it's something defective in his soul. This is the devil's joke on him, all right, that he's greedy. Same thing with a man who comes to Jesus and says, I need you to get my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus says, don't be greedy. Don't be covetous. And the guy's like, covetous? What are you talking about? I'm, it ain't the money. It's the principle of the thing. You understand? All I care about is that it's fair. It's just not right that he's doing what he's doing. I don't care about the money. I'm not a greedy person. I'm not a covetous person. You can ask anybody. That's not my problem. And Jesus says, well, yeah, you know, that's your problem, is that you're greedy. And you can tell because the context of the parable, like when he blurts this out, 
it's in a really weird place because Jesus has been preaching about super heavy subjects like hell and the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and persecution and what you're supposed to say when you get dragged in front of rulers because of your faith. Really intense stuff. And Jesus stops kind of to take a breath and the guy says, tell my brother to buy the inheritance with me. He just blasts that out. And you're like, what have you been thinking about? Dude? You're, you're totally preoccupied with this. It's driving every thought in your head. And so Jesus tells him, no, I'm, who made me the judge of you? Which kind of means, what makes you think I'm on your side in this? And also, why do you think I care about this? Um, this, is, this is your preoccupation, not mine. Um, but then he tells him this story about covetousness, and it's a weird story. When you read the story with the, the guy with the grain and the barns, do you think, wow, what a jerk. You know, that guy must be an atheist. Do you, or do you think, yeah, that seems like good business, right? I, what are you supposed to do when you have all that grain? You know, I, I don't know. I guess Bill Barnes. I, that just sounds smart to me. I don't, I don't know what you're supposed to do in the situation, but it's not a scandalous story on the face of it when you first read it. It sounds like a storage problem, but Jesus tells the story obviously not as a storage problem or a business management problem, but he tells it as an ego and worship problem. And you see in how he tells the story, if you look at it a little more closely, you probably heard as we read it, verse 17, he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build large ones there. I will store all of my grain, my goods, and I will say to my soul. So he's all about me. Right? It's, a, it's an ego issue for him that he's going to make his life work on his own terms. And this is a worship problem too, Jesus concludes this by saying that he was um, laying up treasure for himself, but not rich towards God. Uh, that it's a disconnection with him and God that showed up in the way he thinks about the way he thinks about his money and about his future. And so, basically, Jesus is saying, if you got the whole inheritance and your brother got nothing, it wouldn't solve your problem because your problem is a heart problem before God. It's not a money problem. It's not a fairness problem. It's a heart problem. So what's Jesus say to him? The point of the parable, be on your guard against covetousness. Be on your guard against greed. And that's kind of a hard thing to be on your guard against. You know, um, How often do you pray and say, God, I'm being greedy. Uh, please stop me and help me repent. I don't hardly ever, because I don't know when I'm being greedy. I know when I'm angry. Most people know when I'm angry. Um, uh, I know when I'm lusting, right? I know. I'm never thinking, am I lusting? I don't know. <laughs> you know no, I'm pretty sure. And, but greed? I don't know. I, I don't have any warning lights on my dashboard for greed. Um, and so I don't know. So Jesus says, here's what greed is. He kind of gives two explanations. One is, is thinking that your life consists in the abundance of your possessions. That, that your stuff gives you a life. That money's going to give you a life. The life that you want and desire. And uh, the other is that you're laying up treasure for yourself instead of being rich towards God. And so those things are not easy to graph and chart and say, here's when someone's crossed that line. Those are attitudes of the heart. Uh, issues of trust. Issues of dependence. And things like that. Am, am I trying to get a life for money? Am I trying to be rich for myself or toward God? So... Yeah, are you covetous? Are you a greedy person? The only people I've ever heard say they were were Christians. And I don't mean that 
Maybe Christians are more greedy than other people. But um, I think it's kind of Jesus' being up in your business that makes you think that you're ever greedy. You know, that it was not something that would naturally occur to us if He weren't pointing it out to us. When God calls the man a fool in here, which is a pretty striking thing, God calls the man a fool, He's not saying he's stupid. He's saying that he's, he's a fool in the biblical sense, that he's a practical atheist. The fool says in his heart that there's no God. He's living his life as if God doesn't exist, or probably he's living his life as if it doesn't matter if God exists. Kind of like, uh, God may be there, and He may come through for me, and He may help me, but just in case He doesn't, I've got money. And uh, I, I need to be safe, and God will keep me safe, maybe, if He's there. If He does, great. But I've got money to make me safe just in case. And uh, money makes me significant in other people's eyes, and God will honor me and be my glory, bless me. But if He doesn't, I've got money so that other people will respect me. Right. And I want to be happy, and I think God could do things in my life circumstantially to make me happy. But if He doesn't, i got money. And money will make me happy, even if God doesn't come through for me at all. Basically, I've got a contingency backup plan in case God doesn't do what He should do. Right? And, I, and it's money. And money does that for us, right? So it's a way of trying to make your life work without God. With or without God. It's a substitute. We call that an idol in the Bible, right? Money as a substitute for God. So we ask money to do what God can only do for us. And really, we use money as a weapon in our war of independence against God. I'll be friends with you, God, but I don't have to need you. I don't have to serve you because I've got money. I'll tip my hat to you. I'll do some charitable things. I will do some worshipful things. But I don't, need, I don't have to need you because I've got money. I don't have to need you. And so this is how money works so insidiously as a rival to God in our lives. It makes us think we don't need Him. Of course, it's a lie. All false gods are a lie. They don't do what they promise they'll do. Do you feel safe because you have money or do you just feel anxious all the time because you have money? Having more money doesn't make you feel less anxious, it doesn't seem to me. Did you have your Econ 101 class? Did they tell you about insatiability? How much is enough money? Well, a little more, right? The general answer is 20% more. If I had 20% more than I have, give me some margin, it would cover the obligations I have that I'm struggling to meet right now, about 20% more and I'd be golden. And if you get 20% more, the answer is, I think if I had about 20% more, you know, I'd be gold. Right? It's, it's insatiability. It's never enough for us. We're like, uh, we're like financial bulimics. Right? Uh, no matter how skinny we are, uh, we still think we're fat. Well, no matter how much money we have, we still think we're poor. And that's the way money treats its worshipers. It makes them deluded. Do you play the game of life growing up? Awesome game. Greatest spinner ever. That was an excellent spinner in the game of life. Um, you know, the premise of the game was this is how life works. You start off and you make these different decisions, you know, uh, trying to make your life go as well as it can go. You have to decide whether you're going to go to college or not, and you should definitely go to college in the game of life. Uh, whether you're going to get married or not, you should definitely get married in the game of life. And 
Uh, whether you're going to have kids or not, you've got the little blue pegs and the pink pegs, and then you go around, and good or bad things happen to you financially as you go, and hopefully you, you draw the card and you're a doctor because they make the most money. And, you know, and then you get down to the end, and the, the last square in the game of life is called the Day of Reckoning. Really? The Day of Reckoning. And at the Day of Reckoning, uh, your life is tallied up, and you go to one of two destinations, Millionaire Acres or the Poor Farm. Right, and uh, and in case there's any dispute, the last sentence of the rules say, um, "Whoever finishes the game with the most money wins." Right? So, I think that's a pretty plausible scheme of life for most people living where we live. Um, but Jesus says there's another day of reckoning uh, after that one that may be more important to you at some point. Right, the day of judgment. When we stand before God. And he says, if you want to think about your money with any kind of uh, sense or any kind of reality, then you need to see your money in light of the real day of reckoning, in light of God and eternity and the judgment. And if you don't see your money that way, you're going to be living in a delusional world with false gods. So here's the question. Uh, Assuming that you realize you need some help with uh, covetousness and greed... How do you stop asking money to give you a life? How do you can have as much money as we have and deal with money as often as we do without asking it to give you a life? And the simple answer to say, not to do, is that you need to ask Jesus to give you a life instead of asking money to give you a life. That Jesus gives you a life. Uh, The things that money promises but doesn't deliver, safety and significance and happiness, uh, are things that Jesus actually does give us. He keeps his promises in these ways. But he doesn't give us a solution to covetousness that is um, like actuarial tables or tax tables or something where he says, you know, like, okay, if you want to be a Christian and not be greedy, here is the income level you can have. Anything over that's a problem. Anything under that, you're fine. Or here's the kind of house you can have or the car you can drive. Anything over that's a problem. Anything under that is fine. Um, We all have like mental tables like this by which we judge other people. You know, and thank God for the people who have bigger houses and better cars than me, right? But he also he doesn't give you a uh, even a percentage of giving that says anything this or above and you're fine. Anything below that, you're being greedy. I mean, the Bible talks about a tithe, and most Christians I know that do well with their money think of the tithe as kind of a starting place for their giving. But the Bible says you could if if your heart isn't changed, you could give away ten percent or more of your money and not be any better off before God with regard to money uh, than you were if you didn't give anything. I mean, in Corinthians, Paul says you can give everything you have away and not be right with God necessarily. Because uh, the issues of covetousness are, are issues of the heart. They aren't something that you can solve by hitting a right percentage with your giving. So, you know, if you give away a lot of money and you still are worshiping money, you're either going to get super arrogant about it, about how charitable you are, or you're going to be super anxious because you're going to miss all that money you gave away. Right? And so it doesn't change your heart. The only way you can be changed with regard to covetousness is to have a Savior who will change you. But you need Jesus Himself to save you. Uh, to, one, forgive you for your sins of not only breaking the tenth commandment against covetousness, but the first commandment against having other gods before God. Your autonomy and your greed are both massive problems in your dealings with God. 
things that you need to be forgiven for and reasons that Jesus went to the cross for you. So you are forgiven because God has punished your sins in Jesus Christ. And without that starting point, you can't just tweak and remedy your attitude so that greed isn't a problem for you anymore. You need to be forgiven. But you also need to be secure to know that God, who is in control of the world and who has promised to take care of you, really likes you and is willing to bless you. That when he says, I'll take care of you, I know what you need before you even ask me. Look at the sparrows and how uh, they're provided for. Look at the grass, the field, and how pretty it is. I'll dress you. Um, You need to believe that God's really for you. And only Jesus, our Savior, can really convince us of that. Because really, if we're honest, we say, God has every reason not to take care of me. Um, He should be aggrieved by my life. He should be disappointed with me constantly. I can't imagine, if I were him, I wouldn't bless me. But because of what Jesus has done, we have confidence that he will. You know, the Bible says he's given you his son. How will he not also along with him give you all good things to enjoy? So it's Jesus that gives us confidence that God will take care of us. So we get a life from Jesus, knowing him and enjoying him. That's the thing that gives substance to our life that financial blessing or woes can't touch. Right? We belong to Him. He's promised to take care of us. We're secure and we're free to be generous. We can give money away now because we're secure in Him. We don't have to be scared of money. So, He says you've got to learn then to be rich toward God. Try to get a life from Jesus and learn how to be rich towards God. How do you, how do you be rich towards God? Um, I think... The best analogy I know for how we think about our, God, our uh, money with regard to God is, is uh, the role of the trustee. Have you ever had to serve as a trustee for someone's estate where uh, all the money is given to you to disperse? You have the authority, the decision-making power to disperse it because the trustor, is that the right word? The trustor has given you the money and said, I want you to administer this money according to my wishes. All right? So it's not your money, but you have all the decision-making power with it. Uh, you are supposed to distribute the money according to the wishes of the trustor. Um, God is the trustor. He's given us money to manage. It's not our money, but we have, de- we have decision-making power for it. We use it according to his wishes. What does he want done in the world? And I'm, I don't usually give simple acrostic things like this, but I like this one. Uh, the wishes of the trustor are that we beg, B-E-G, that we spend money on basic needs, that we spend money on enjoying God's good gifts, and we spend money by giving it to His cause in His kingdom. B-E-G, basic needs, enjoyment, and enjoyment is one of them. God made this world for human beings to delight in. There's a lot of great stuff to enjoy. The place we live is especially rich with those things. We're not supposed to pretend we don't notice, care, or like it. Using money for things you enjoy is fine. It's good. Thankfully, when we do it thankfully, God's pleased by that. But also we give our money away, and pretty copiously as Christians. You know, the examples we're given in the Scripture are that we should give in crazy, frightening, generous ways. So St. Ambrose said many moons ago, uh, the rich fool had a place to store his crops already before he built new barns. Uh, The houses of the widows and the mouths of the poor were the places that he had to store his crops. And... um, He just wasn't thinking about them. So, 
we give our money away, but it's not just that we give money away, it's why we give our money away that matters. Because you can give your money away in ways that uh, are not really Christian altruism or generosity. You know, Warren Buffett, after giving an unbelievable bequest to charity away in the multiple billions of dollars, uh, had this quote, there are many ways to get to heaven. This is a great one. (laughs) Things you're going to wish you hadn't said. Um, That's not true. We cannot uh, persuade God that we are something different than we are by any amount of money that we give away. You can't impress God uh, with your righteousness by any amount of money that you give away. That's a fallacy. I'll give you a positive for Warren Warren Buffett since I used him negatively. Uh, He called a son into his office and said, I'm giving you your full inheritance now in advance. And he gave him one share of Berkshire Hathaway stock, which today is worth about $283,000. So it wasn't nothing. But compared to Buffett's millions, it was a pretty dramatic statement to say, I've seen a lot of people inherit money and it ruins them. And I love you and I'm not going to do that to you. So uh, there's one plus for Warren Buffett's side. But giving money to impress God doesn't work, right? It doesn't work. Uh, giving money to justify yourself in your own mind doesn't work either. If I give this much away, if I give 10% of my money away, then I can feel pretty good about myself with regard to greed and covetousness and about how money works in my life. And if you start trying to find a way to give money that satisfies you so that you don't have to feel guilty, uh, you're, you're in a losing game. You're on a treadmill that you're not going to get off of. Uh, That's not why Christians give to justify ourselves. Uh, That doesn't work. For a Christian who's trying to get a life from Jesus, uh, the reasons you give are different from those. Um, You give to declare your dependence on God. That is to say, um, I'm trusting you to come through for me at a level where if you don't, I'm in trouble. (laughs) Right? I'm going to give money away so that if you don't provide for me and, and take care of me, I'm going to be in a tight, tight spot. I'm, I'm going to be, I've got to give at a level that makes me uncomfortable, basically. It's sort of, my rule of thumb for it is, it's like a golf bet, right? When you make a golf bet, it doesn't have to be a lot of money. It just has to be enough to make you uncomfortable. Like, I want, when I stand over a three-foot putt, to be a little nervous about it. The stakes need to be high enough for that. They really don't need to be much higher than that. I just need to be uncomfortable. Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson are uh, bandying about the idea of playing a match. uh, And uh, Tiger said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Stakes, whatever whatever makes him uncomfortable. $10 million is what they've talked about being their stake. It took that much to make them uncomfortable. It doesn't take that much to make me uncomfortable. Um, But when you're thinking about your giving, you're basically, you want to give it a level that says, God, okay, I'm doing this, and if you don't provide for me, this is going to be a problem. Like, any normal financial planner who looks at what I'm doing is going to raise their eyebrows because it doesn't make any sense unless you're real, unless you exist. So giving at the level that makes you uncomfortable is a Christian way of declaring dependence on God and freedom from money. I don't have to be afraid of you, money. I don't have to be afraid of you uh, because God said He's going to take care of me and I believe it. And that's kind of the other side of it. Christians give to desecrate their idols. To taunt their idols and say, Money, you're not the boss of me. 
I do not have to be afraid of you. I do not have to stay up late at night scared of you because you can't touch me because I have a Father who's promised to take care of me. And so we give cheerfully but mockingly when we give to say, I don't need it. I can give it away. I'm not scared of you. You're not the boss of me. Which is a tremendous freedom, right? A tremendous freedom. Nobody you know lives with that kind of freedom. It's a beautiful gift from Jesus for us that we can live not afraid of money. We just don't have to be afraid of it. A few of you have children who are uh, about grown or nearly grown. I've probably received phone calls. I'm not saying I have or haven't. Um, Dad! <laughs> Dad! My car broke and they want $850 to fix my car. What in the world am I going to do? I don't have $850. Dad, I went to the ER and they want $3,000, you know, for just, you know, a sprained ankle, you know, hypothetically. Um, and uh, what am I going to do, Dad? What am I going to do? I got a ticket and they want $300 for it. I don't know. I didn't mean to. I don't, what am I going to do? Life is ending for me. Dad, 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 Dad. And what do you want to say? I mean, hypothetically, I'll tell you what you want to say. You want to say, baby, you have a dad. You have a dad. It's going to be okay. You have a dad. Christian, you have a dad. You have a dad. Let's pray.